Hello, my name is Tucker Johnson, and I am your host today as we all experience NIMSY Live, where we talk about the latest and greatest in translation, localization, internationalization, culturalization, and all that fun stuff global companies need to delight their international customers, or at least not to piss them off too much. On this program, we invite guests who like to have fun and have some value to add for our audience of globalization professionals. I'm always eager to provide a platform to those with a good story or a good data set. So let us know if there are any topics you'd like covered or guests we could reach out to for future episodes. If you haven't already done so, make sure that you are subscribed to Nimsy Insights. Uh, most of y'all are probably watching this on LinkedIn Live. Go ahead and follow Nimsy Insights. You'll be one of the first people to know when we publish new industry research at Nimsy.com or when we schedule new events and live streams like this. We have a whole bunch of events on the calendar and pretty much every single day um, my producer Melissa is scheduling a new event to go live. So if you follow us, then you'll be first to know when those go live. A uh, quick introduction to the platform here. Like I said, most of you all are joining us on LinkedIn Live. It's a great place, so make sure that you are taking advantage of that networking tab, joining us in chat. If you have questions, comments, criticisms, leave them in the chat, and we'll bring them up on screen over here and make sure that we are addressing them. So without further ado, let's get right into it. Uh, I've got an interesting conversation today, and the conversation is taken from a recent article published in Multilingual Magazine, partnering, which of course, you know, Nimsy and Multilingual partner together. And it's in the July issue on page 14, for those of you that would like to follow along at home with your episode or with your issue of Multilingual Magazines on page 14, and the title is called Be Fearless on Your Way to Multilingual Mastery by Marina Pancheva. And just to really quickly give us an introduction here, what does it take to be a polyglot? The quick answer is you got to learn a lot of foreign languages, which brings up the harder question, what does it take to learn a lot of foreign languages? In this episode, polyglot and linguist Marina Pancheva, PhD, provides the full answer and discusses all the factors influencing the speed and success of foreign language learning. Marina is a language specialist and polyglot with a wealth of experience in diverse management, administrative, academic, and teaching roles. She holds a PhD degree in theoretical linguistics, dedicating her academic endeavors to exploring the elemental particles of language through the nanosyntax framework. A passionate advocate for clear communication, Marina created the English Language Help Desk, a website devoted to promoting effective writing. Her commitment to sharing knowledge is evident through regular contributions to the RWS Moravia blog and her participation as a speaker in various outreach events. Since 2014, Marina has been actively involved in the high-paced realm of localization. She leads a multifaceted team working on solutions and processes for crowd localization, including technological advancements, business intelligence, linguistic quality, community management, and more. Marina, welcome to the show. It's good to have you. What did, what did I leave out from that introduction? I think you covered it all. Uh, maybe my love for data and the data sciences, but that's a side uh, hobby, so not worth mentioning really. You know, but yeah, that's that's about me. That it's it's a, it's a it's a side hobby, sure, but that's an important thing because I find that a, a combination of love of language and a love of data is not too common in our industry. You know, it's kind of like a left brain, right brain kind of thing. 
So the fact that you are, you know, loving languages and cultures, but also loving the the science behind it is really fascinating. Uh, yeah, I think that the when the two combined my love for languages and my love for data, uh, it actually naturally led to my research on nanosyntax, which is uh, one can say it's a mathematical model of language, very abstract, and one has to work with a lot of data there. Just as an example for my PhD studies, um, through my PhD studies and for my final PhD book um, and the, the thesis, I had to read the grammar of about, I think it was 78 languages. So I get Jeez. a very good idea of, you know, how grammar works in 78 languages. So nothing can surprise me anymore. Uh, not that I speak those, right? But well, you, know, you read the grammar, you get a sense of the language. I'm an American, so that's 78 languages more than I know the grammar for. Let's just put it that <laughs> way. <laughs> well, and, you know, thanks thanks for your contribution to Multilingual Magazine. As I mentioned out there, page 14 of the July issue of Multilingual Magazine, if you haven't picked it up yet out there. I'll give us a quick intro here. On, on the article, once again, it's called Be Fearless on Your Way to Multilingual Mastery. So, a uh, quote from the article, as a first step, we must distinguish between language acquisition and language learning. Language acquisition is a spontaneous and unconscious process of absorbing new vocabulary, pronunciation, and grammar rules, such as word order, verbal tenses, and more. Language learning, on the contrary, is the conscious process of internalizing the language rules, vocabulary, and phonology through formal study and instruction. A student of a new language may be perfectly well aware of all case declinations, tense, smooth, voice, devoicing, progressive voicing, and other rules that language has, but still remain unable to apply them in conversations outside the classroom. A language learned this way is called a second language or a foreign language. And this really spoke to me. So I, uh, some would call me a polyglot. I, I would hesitate to use that term to apply to myself. But I've studied and I speak Spanish and German, and so I've gone through the language learning process. I wasn't fortunate enough to go through the acquisition process where I, I learned it as a child or just picked it up. But, um, yeah, lots of words in this paragraph that even I didn't understand going through that. And I, I, don't, I don't feel like I'm fluent in anything here. So maybe talk to us a little bit about this concept of fluency. What, what does that mean? And in general conversation, if someone asks, are you fluent in a language, what does that even mean? And can you talk about that, like in scientific terms? Um, yeah, but before that, let me just get back one step. You know, technically, the definition of a polyglot is somebody who speaks over five languages. Oh, I'm not a so polyglot then, unless you can't pig Latin. And then it. if you speak more than 10 languages, you are a hyper polyglot, okay? So... Uh, I know right, of many, right. many polyglots. Thanks for, thanks for shaming me on my own podcast. I appreciate it. <laughs> We're only three minutes Just in. Just the correction. They need to be scientifically accurate. Um, but then back to the question about fluency. Well, to be fluent in a language, to me, it actually means to be able to express your thoughts without stalling. You just, you know, your mm. thoughts come uh, and you are able to express them. Ideally, your thoughts are in the language in which you want to express them. So full fluency is when you think in the language uh, that you produce, you know, that in, into which you translate your thoughts. Uh, but there are different stages of fluency. And, you know, 
in the second language uh, teaching, you know, there are all those stages which you are probably familiar with. It's like beginner, be uh, intermediate, beginner, advanced beginner, uh, intermediate, mid-level, high-level, you know, up, up to, you know, um, excellent proficiency. And those are a bit of an artificial stages and they have been defined, you know, what type of grammar you know and how many words you know and so on. But from my practical experience, things don't develop hand in hand. So in many cases, you can know the whole grammar of a language. You can be like totally comfortable with the grammar, but you like vocabulary. Hmm. So you know how to express yourself in past tense and in future tense, and you can even use a conditional or a subjunctive, but you don't have the words to explain, you know, what you want to buy yourself in the supermarket, because these are, you know, daily words that you learn only when you're exposed to the language in everyday life. And it can be vice versa. You can know a lot of words, but you don't know how to, how to connect them together because the grammar is not there yet. So... You're fluent when you master both grammar and vocabulary and pronunciation, which is the hardest thing to master for an adult. Yeah. Actually, impossible if you learn a language later than a certain age. Yeah. Wait, um, well, but there well, are I'm sorry, I, I missed that. What, what's the hardest thing to master as an adult? Pronunciation. Oh, speaking pronun speaking yeah. a foreign language without an accent. You know, I guess yeah. you can hear I have it too, even though I would say I'm pretty fluent in English, but you can hear I'm not a native speaker. Fair enough. Because there's a there's a critical age there is a critical age for acquiring you know the the pronunciation of a language and sounding native and past that critical age you can learn the grammar you can learn the vocabulary but your accent will always give you away as a non-native speaker. Well, that's all right. I, I love accents, except for for mine. I mean, there's there's people across the pond. The real English speakers would say I have an accent. <laughs> so. <laughs> I would be able to tell. Going going into this, um, diving deeper into this article, you talk about two different, well, let me just pull it up here. You talk about linguistic complexity and linguistic distance and language transfer. So what we're looking at here are, we're getting into kind of this article answers the question, what does it take to learn another language? And how long does it take to learn another language? And what are some of the factors that affect how long it takes to learn another language here? And so I love how in the article, you split it up between linguistic factors and then non-linguistic factors. So first let's look at the linguistic factors of linguistic complexity and linguistic distance and language transfer. Just for the benefit of our podcast listeners, I'll, I'll read the definition from the article here for linguistic complexity. Uh, the complexity of a language directly influences the time needed to achieve proficiency. The problem is that it is hard to measure the overall complexity of a language, as a language may be easy to learn in one domain, but difficult for another. For instance, Mandarin Chinese has a difficult pictographic script and a tonal system unfamiliar to most speakers of an Indo-European language, but its grammar is very fairly simple. Georgian, on the contrary, has a very complex grammar, but its script is relatively easy to learn. And of course, the article goes on, but maybe you can just expand upon this a little bit for us, Marina. Well, I mean, there are really simple languages, like simpler languages and more difficult languages. So the speed with which you are going to acquire a language or learn a language depends on which language you are, you are aiming at, right? So I'm currently learning Spanish, and I must say uh, that's an easy language. Um, both when it comes to vocabulary and grammar, especially because uh, it's close to all the other languages I speak. So mm. it's not only that it's 
doesn't have a very complex grammar. It's fairly logical. There are a few exceptions, uh, but also uh, it has a very short linguistic distance to English, for example. Okay. Um, many words are the same, more or less. You just pronounce them differently. Uh, there are very many cognates. Uh, but there are languages which are very difficult and they can be very difficult in different domains, right? So there are languages which are very diff difficult in their phonology. Like uh, you can again compare Spanish, which has what, five vowels probably, like really the basic vowels uh, and Norwegian. As God intended. Just the vowels. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yes. Well, Norwegian, you know, the number of vowels is probably double. I mean, I haven't really? counted them, but, you know, there are many variations. So just getting to pronounce, to learn the way to pronounce Norwegian vowels, it's difficult. It requires a lot of, a lot of practice. Yeah. When it comes to grammar uh, as well, there are languages which have multiple cases, you know, up to 17 cases. And there are languages where you express the same notion that is expressed by case by simple prepositions. Easier to learn. Yeah, so um, languages differ, their complexity differs. Generally, you cannot say that language A is easier than language B, but what you can say is that when it comes to morphology, language A is easier than language B. When it comes to phonology, it's vice versa. So um, by and large, you know, every language is complex in some way and simple in another. Uh, and, and that will kind of define, you know, how you are going to master it, like where you need to focus and, and what your success is going to be. Interesting. And uh, out of curiosity, and I don't want to make any assumptions, but I see the beautiful Brno Cathedral behind you. I'm still going to ask, what is your native language? Uh, yeah, I grew up with three languages, of actually, course. which of is one did. of the reasons I'm <laughs> multilingual, yeah, uh, because this helps, definitely. So from my father's side, I learned Bulgarian. And from my mother's side, I learned Persian, also called Farsi. Oh, wow. But then uh, I was exposed to a lot of Russian during my childhood. So for some reason, I started reading books in Russian instead of Bulgarian. I think it was simply around. Uh, so these are the three languages that were the language, the first languages I acquired. And then gradually, I kind of moved on to learn other languages as part of the school system and, and also because I just wanted to. I had an agenda, I had a goal, which could be achieved only if I learned many, many languages. Languages, learning languages is like getting a tattoo, in, in my opinion. Like once you get one, you're, all, you're you already want to get another one, right? I don't have any tattoos, so I, I can't speak. I think you're right. I've seen that happen. Um, so uh, Russian, Bulgarian, yeah. and uh, Farsi. What's the language distance between those three language pairs? Like, are they similar? I mean, I kind of know the answer, but I don't want to make assumptions. Um, are they similar? Are they different? And how has that affected your ability to learn the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth languages? Um, yeah, well, they're all Indo-European languages, which okay. means that they're, they, they share the same root, right? So you can find many words that are sound similar. You can see how they are related to each other. And also the grammar is not that different. Uh, for example, Persian puts the verb always last in the sentence, but the verbal inflection itself is pretty similar to the way it works in, in Slavic languages uh, um, and in Romance languages, like Spanish and Italian. Um, but, you know, naturally, Russian and Bulgarian, they are Slavic languages, so they're closer. And Persian uh, is farther away when it comes to linguistic uh, distance. Not to mention the script, right? Bulgarian and Persian are writ written in Cyrillic, 
Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, Bulgarian and Russian are Syriac, and Persian is using the Persian or the Arabic alphabet, which has been adapted for Persian. So totally different script, different direction of reading, which I always thought was very amusing when I was a kid that I had to open the book from the from the end and go towards the starts. Yeah, uh, that kind of things I thought were a lot of fun. Yeah, the right to left scripts blow our minds. Like when people find out about that, because most people, unless you work in this industry, seriously, a lot of people that work in this industry don't understand right to left and bidirectionality and stuff like that. And it's always fascinating to to watch someone learn about that for the first time. It's kind of like mind blowing because language affects the way that we think and the way that we see the world, right? And it's like, I would argue like, I see the world from left to right, right? Like- okay, you think so? Yeah, yeah. So it's like- like things like in in movies, for example, I was watching this documentary, I, I can't remember where, but it's like if they want to show like the main characters progressing, they're always mm -hmm. like walking. So like Lord of the Rings, everyone knows Lord of the Rings. The characters, when they're running towards something, they're always running from the left-hand screen to the right-hand screen. And I believe when they localized that for a Middle East market, they flipped those scenes so that they're running wow. from the right to the left. Don't quote me on that, wow. but I, I believe that's what they did. But anyways, let's get back. So we talked about uh, linguistic complexity, um, linguistic distance and language transfer. Um, for linguistic distance and language transfer, I'll, I'll read for our podcast listeners. Linguistic distance is the degree of similarity between two languages. It is most frequently measured based on the lexical similarity between two languages using the Levenstein distance. That is the overall number of additions, deletions, or substitutions of letters that are necessary to change a word in one language into the corresponding word in another language. For instance, how many operations does it take to change the English word water into the German German word Wasser or Hebrew Mayim? Um, anything to add to that? Or can we look at this pretty graphic that shows the lexical distance between the Europe's languages? Well, if you want to go academic and go in depth, I can mention that linguistic distance is not a perfect measure because um, languages share so-called false friends. You may have heard about this term, you know, words that are exactly the same, but they actually mean different things. So if you just measure the Levenstein distance, you will say, you know, oh, these are the same words. They haven't changed at all. But you don't take into account the crucial fact that the meaning is very different. In fact, it can be the right opposite. And I have had lots of amusing um, um, kind of uh, conversations here in the Czech Republic uh, because Czech and Bulgarian share lots of words, but some of them really mean the opposite uh, to the extent that it's very confusing. Uh, for example, the word for uh, wonderful, a very positive word in Czech is užasna, which in Bulgarian means terrible, horrible, really bad. And the word for um, for um, a smell, like aroma, a nice aroma in Czech is uh, is vunya, which is similar to Bulgarian vonya, which means stink. So you can imagine my surprise when I was watching an advertisement of a, some sort of a washing liquid or powder, where one uh, one lady would brag to another that she just washed her laundry and it's this horrible stink. Uh, which would be like and i would like oh my goodness this this cannot be true yeah um, and similar words which are very confusing um even i start getting confused confused because the word for um for remember in bulgarian is the same as the word for forget in czech so when i tell my kids in the morning to remember to take their 
whatever, a sports uh, shoes, they look at me and they're like trying to figure out, you know, you I, I see them like flip between languages. Like, what does she mean? Forget or remember, forget or remember. <laughs> so it's, it can be very confusing. So linguistic distance is, is a good measure, but it's not a perfect measure because it doesn't take into consideration those very dangerous words that can mean opposite things or even worse, in some language, they're a neutral term and in another, it can be a vulgar term. So one oh, needs to be yeah. very, very careful when using them. Yeah. I always think of, um, like when I was learning Spanish, I can't tell you how many times Precisely. I said Yes, I, I was, know which one you mean. Yeah, embarazada. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, yes. Like, oh, I, this I, one, I thought uh, you were meaning ooh, the synonym of uh, tomar, yeah. Uh, mm, uh, another another one which is even worse another yes. one right mm -hmm. but anyways google it listeners google it um google it and be careful <laughs> a map of lexical distances between europe's languages this is a great graphic where did you find this and what does it show us uh, it's on big thing so it's not created by me it's uh, you can you can go to the url here on big thing and and look at it but it was created uh, uh before by an ukrainian linguist published in a book and it's actually Russian or it's it's in Ukrainian, sorry, Ukrainian, Cyrillic, and then Big Thing kind of redid it uh, for, you know, using the Latin alphabet, marking the languages in Latin. But what it shows is how languages group. And the interesting thing on this, uh, on this uh, visual are actually the languages that are isolated. You can see there Albanian, you can see there Basque, these are languages which are quite distant from any other language spoken in Europe. Uh, and they're so called language isolates. They're isolated. They are not related to any other language. Greek is another isolated language as well. So they are typically not very easy to learn because they're just so different from any other language that you may be speaking. Hmm. Yeah, very interesting. And it's like, I, how much have you looked into because like when we talk about language learning and stuff, you know, the usual suspects come up, European language, you know, like the major languages around the world. Yeah. But how much yeah. have you looked into, as part of your studies and your life in academia, into like these languages of lesser diffusion, whatever the popular term is these days, but, you know, tribal languages, isolated languages. Yes, a lot, yes. Non-standardized. I was going... I was going precisely for those type of languages, you know, languages that are very rare because usually in those very rare languages, you also find very rare phenomena. Yeah. Uh, very interesting phenomena. Yeah. So I cannot list them all, but, you know, I was looking at, you know, Quechua, not such a rare language, but I was, I spent quite a lot of time investing some, investigating some phenomena in Quechua. I was looking at Caucasian languages. They're very interesting. And then you have also the, the kind of Sami type of languages, uh, which are also very interesting. Uh, but I, you know, I was doing it from a purely theoretical point of view, just going after a particular way of expressing something, particular morphology. So I don't know much about the, like the vocabulary of the languages, sure, nor sure. the culture. Sure. And how much of your study has taken you into culture? I know, I know you're a linguist, and that's that's what you've studied, yeah. and that's what you've 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 worked in, and all of that stuff. But there's such an overlap between culture and language. Well, it depends on how you study language, right? So, mm -hmm. in my master's studies, I studied Scandinavian studies, so that was philology. That was like soft linguistics. So that was uh, Scandinavian languages and culture and literature and history and so on. 
So it took me quite close to the Scandinavian culture and no wonder I did my PhD in Norway. Yeah. Uh, but uh, when I then continued with the more theoretical research, this is this is very abstract, very mathematical, so it doesn't take you to culture. We, we didn't look at language as an expression of a culture or a way of thinking. We were looking at it as an expression of a, of a particular abstract mathematical model. Interesting. Very interesting. I, and I, I have so many follow up questions, but I'm going to I'm going to move forward here because we've got some tables and I think this is a question that a lot of people want to know. It's a very logical question to ask. Like, um, well, so we've got two tables here. I'm going to go through both of them. Table one and table two, um, page 15 and 16 in multilingual for those following along at home. Um, basically, how long does it take to learn a language and what's, you know, how, how good can I expect if I start studying today? How long is it going to take me to learn a language and how good will I be after, you know, 480 hours is what this table says. So if I invest 480 hours, which there's a lot of people out there that you've invested 480 hours into playing your favorite video game. So that's not an unreasonable amount of time, right? And we have on the screen here, language is Dutch, Greek, Finnish, and Japanese are the examples. And we have columns for minimal aptitude, average aptitude, and superior aptitude. And you can see here, just going along for, so for Dutch, after 480 hours, um, the results are different than for Greek, Finnish, and Japanese. Talk to, talk to us a little bit about this. Yes, and we, what is important here is that this is how long will it take an English speaker, that is somebody who has Fair. English as a first language, yeah. to learn Dutch. It would be different for a, for a say, Korean speaker. Very good point. Um, who's learning Dutch or Japanese. So, yeah. Uh, well, what this table shows is, you know, basically it reflects linguistic distance. As an English speaker trying to learn Dutch, you will be much faster than uh, if you try to learn Greek, uh, still faster than if you try to learn Finnish, because Finnish is so different than mm. Indo-European languages. And it will take you really long to learn Japanese. In fact, I recently read somewhere that Japanese is the hardest language. So if you ask me about language complexity, Japanese is supposed to be the language which really takes longest time to learn to full proficiency, like thousands of hours. I think it was 1,700 for somebody with superior linguistic aptitude. That is somebody who is really good at learning languages, needs almost 2000 hours to learn Japanese. Um, yeah, so if you wanna learn a language just for the sake of learning a language, choose one that is, and you wanna be fast, yeah, choose one that is close to your language. If you are a Korean speaker, choose Japanese. Okay. If you are an English speaker, choose Dutch or German. Uh, if you're an Italian speaker, choose Spanish, then it will really be easy for you to learn those languages. But if you want to learn something new and exotic, then go for a language which is distant from your native language. Then you will learn something very, very different. Interesting. And is it is it a fair assumption to say, like, it goes back and forth? So, like, it's easier yes. for an English speaker to yes. learn Dutch and Dutch to learn? Okay, okay. interesting. Totally, totally. Yeah. And you may have found that Dutch speakers generally are excellent Dutch, Dutch native speakers uh, are excellent speakers of English, right? They have better um, accents than I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also another interesting fact is that uh, uh, Japanese uh, native speakers are really um, slow at uh, learning English. And when you look at uh, 
exam results, for example, I don't know, those exam um, language exams that are done all over the world, like TOEFL or Cambridge exam, Japanese speakers tend to, to score among the lowest. Really? And that is because of the language distance. Yeah, that because English is just yeah. so difficult for, so different and so difficult for Japanese native speaker to learn. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's, sure, it's sure. Uh, simply takes much more hours, many more hours to learn it. Very cool. Let's let's pull up the second table here. Uh, table two, how the duration of study influences the proficiency level attained in Finnish. So this is a very specific example. We have length of study, 480 hours, 720 hours, and 1,320 hours. Minimal aptitude, average aptitude, and superior aptitude. What does the aptitude mean in the column headings aptitude here? Aptitude means basically uh, your propensity to learning a language, so how good you are at learning language. And this is uh, there's a lot of research going now into aptitude because it's very hard to define it, right. but it's connected to your ability to distinguish sounds, like peer differences, um, your ability to extract grammatical rules, um, parse, um, memorize as well. So all of that together uh, combines into your general linguistic uh, aptitude. So, so that's a real thing yeah. when someone says, like, I'm not good with languages or I'm yes. good with language. That's a real thing. There's studies. It is that a real thing. Okay. It, yes. Yes. Uh, and as a second language teacher, I used to do that a lot. I know that there are people who have linguistic aptitude on a very high level and those who don't. Um, and they just need to put more effort. Is, is that correlated at all? Oh. Really quickly, sorry to interrupt, but is that correlated at all to how many languages they were raised with? Like if someone was raised speaking three languages in the home like you, yes. they would have higher yes. aptitude? Yes. Makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Like how my, how many languages you grew up with? So what was your linguistic development? Like how much exposure you had to languages when you were a kid, uh, when you started talking and all of that. Generally, you know, the, the more the more linguistic input children get, and that's why it's important that you read for your baby. Yeah. The, the better, the earlier they start talking, the better they develop this language faculty and the more likely they are to have a superior linguistic aptitude. Throughout do, their life, it doesn't change. That doesn't change. Do children that are raised with a, and I know difficult is different factors as we discussed in the first five minutes, right? <laughs> but would children that were raised with a more complex language, would they generally have a higher aptitude, generally speaking? Or is that? Um, I don't think so. Really. I haven't read concrete research on that, but I don't think that it makes a difference because for children, linguistic complexity doesn't really make a difference because children learn languages in a very different way like we as adults learn languages so we go to the classroom and we memorize oh this is the way you form future tense and this is you know how you uh, form plural uh, of, for your nouns and this is how your adjectives agree with your nouns kids don't do that okay kids acquire language they they implicitly learn the grammar rules of their language but they're not capable of formulating it right no kid will tell you every kid will use um grammar correctly but no kid before school age can explain to you the grammar rules of their language because they don't right. abstract the grammar rules from their language so it doesn't matter how i i wouldn't think that it matters right i mean i haven't read the research haven't done it but my assumption is that it doesn't matter Interesting. Okay. All right. Back to back to the table. So it's only going to take me if I have an average aptitude 
for language learning. It's only going to take me 1,300 hours to have an advanced grasp upon the Finnish language. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Or maybe a better, a better comparison is if you have superior aptitude, you are going to reach an advanced mid-level for Finnish after 720 hours. But if you have minimal aptitude, then you need to invest by, I don't know, 600 more. 1320 hours to get it to exactly the same level yeah so that is you know how people with superior aptitude can learn the language faster than those with minimal aptitude but what it also shows this table is how the amount of time you invest in language learning pushes your level forward right mm -hmm. so if you invest 480 hours say you have average aptitude you will be intermediate level uh when you go to 720, then you're already at advanced level. So basically your language skills, your foreign language skills are a function of the time that you invest um, in, uh, in language learning. Makes and sense. no matter your aptitude, you gotta invest time. Well, and really, uh, if you wanna learn that. language, you, yeah, you gotta invest time. Not all time is created equal, right? So first of all, like, is it better to do, to invest that time? First of all, I'm going to ask you a frequency. Then I'm going to ask you, like, when you say invest time, what does that look like? Does it mean studying? Does it mean speaking? Does it mean what? Okay. But is it better Very to do question. it one hour a day for 480 days or half an hour a day for 960 days? Like, what, what's, how do I optimize my return on investment? So now the question is how you're going to learn that language. And there are two ways. One is you get submerged in the country and the culture that speaks that language and you simply absorb it, right? For example, that's the way I learned Czech. I came to, to, to live in the Czech Republic, never studied it, never went to any classes. But just by virtue of being submerged in the culture and having Czech spoken around me all the time, eventually I learned it. And it was again a function of time. The longer I lived here, the, the better I spoke Czech. And I hope this trend will continue. Uh, but I never had any formal instruction. Okay, so this is one way of investing time. You okay. are simply in the country and you absorb the language and you have to use it. Yeah, you have to use it. Uh, not just listen, but also talk. Another way of investing time is you go to classes okay. or you do Duolingo or whatever. You know, you kind of consciously uh, invest time in acquiring the rules of the language uh, and then you start applying them by producing producing the language. Uh, again, here it's, you know, the, the time is important. The more you spend doing exercises, um, reading books, um, memorizing vocabulary, the, the better your language uh, knowledge is going to be. And when it comes to the regularity, uh, based on my practical experience and also the experience I have um, from uh, teaching, uh, languages to students, uh, it's much better to invest a bit every day rather than uh, kind of aggregate the time in a super intensive one week study um, and if, and and then be done with it. That is, if you if you want to invest, I don't know, 100 hours into studying German, better do it um, one hour for 100 days in a row or let's say 200 days, but kind of distributed instead of doing a three-week intensive course okay. where you take all those hundred hours at once um, because the memory works in a way that 
when it's so intensive, when it comes in one big bulk, uh, you will forget faster. But when it's a, a drop at a time, the, it will be more stable in your memory. Yeah, I think that's, that's probably good study advice no matter what you're studying, right? Just as far as yeah. knowledge retention. So, yes. Very interesting. So, let's go into. So we've talked about linguistic factors, uh, linguistic complexity, uh, linguistic distance and language transfer. Let's go into the next section where we're looking at non-linguistic factors for language learning success here. And to list some of the things that you talked about, and of course you go into more into it in more depth in your article, but we're looking at motivation, age, linguistic aptitude, which we've already discussed, personality, self-esteem, uh, language anxiety, risk-taking, extroversion versus introversion, time. I, I can relate to a lot of these. Age, it's, it's getting harder and harder. As, as I get older, mo motivation, well, motivation and age are correlated, I think. But, you know, people ask what's... it. it <laughs> it's the old joke about what's the best way to learn a language in bed, right? <laughs> uh, linguistic aptitude, <laughs> learning style, personality... Uh, talk to us a little bit about these, and we don't have to go through all of all of this list. But what what are the non-linguistic factors, Marina? Yeah, I think the most interesting one is actually age, and the others relate to a certain extent to age. Okay, so um, for first language acquisition, that is the way kids learn a language, you know, naturally without anybody teaching them. Uh, there is uh, there is this. As, like it's it's accepted in the in the um, scientific field that there is a critical age, right? If you don't learn a language uh, by the time you are of a certain age, you are actually never going to learn that language well. Uh, good examples come from uh, from these uh, tragic cases of uh, wild children, which were kind of uh, abandoned, lived in a forest, and then they were found at the age of I don't know, 10, uh, 12. Um, and they didn't have any language because there was nobody to talk to them in the forest. They were raised by monkeys or wolves or whatever. Uh, they never learned the language because they were past the critical period. Yeah. So um, there is Are, such a critical have, period. Have you heard of this? Um, you can dispel this if this is like an urban legend, not urban, but this, this is a myth or not. But I, I heard about like there was like this king one time that separated children. They wanted to, so that his hypothesis was I want to understand what language they spoke in the Garden of Eden, like the first man and the first woman. So his way for testing for that was to take children and separate them from their mothers and raise them in complete silence. No one talked to them. They had wet nurses and nannies and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, you're laughing. Okay, so is, is this complete bullshit? Because I've heard this so many times. These children wouldn't talk at all. They wouldn't talk they at wouldn't all. They wouldn't be even able well, to okay. learn. They so, be so able... The no, legend goes sounds, like... that the children yeah. actually ended up dying early deaths because they lack that human interaction, right? Have okay. you have you heard yes, of this story before? Likely. No, no. So okay. they probably died because it's it's not fun to be raised, you know, when nobody talks to you and probably they weren't taken care of well. But yeah, uh, when it comes to well, language... Plus it was medieval times. So, you know, <laughs> like the yeah. plague was a thing back then. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But it, when it comes to language, you know... Um, 
they wouldn't acquire a language. They may, you know, these children that are raised in silence or they had to, you know, they didn't have any input of human language uh, during the critical period, which is the first, I would say, five, six, seven years, mm -hmm. uh, they can learn vocabulary because they can memorize. So they can learn the, the words of the words of objects. What they cannot do is combine words into grammatical, grammatically correct sentences. It's the combination, it's the grammar that oh. they are, the syntax that they cannot acquire. Otherwise, you know, memory is working, right? They can point at something and say that's a table and that's a, that's a chair. That is, they will say table and chair, but they cannot say the table is uh, in front of the chair and, uh, you know, things like I went to the movies yesterday. No. Interesting. It's a little bit the way the way chimps can use certain signs and, and yeah, that's what I was thinking. Words, but they cannot string them together in a productive and creative way to produce new utterances. So you brought it up. Can chimps talk? You, you, no. you see those stories. Yeah, because those like feel good stories no. about teaching Coco the gorilla to speak. And is that is that no, a thing that, or is that a fraud? Chimps uh, can learn, you know, the meaning of words, right? So they know that when they hear a banana, they can associate that to the to the food, right? Oh, they can. My, uh, my bird they can, can do learn. That. <laughs> right. But what they cannot do, and they cannot do, is they cannot combine productively um, those tokens, right? Those words to produce sentences. So a chimp cannot say, I like this banana because it's yellow, you know, right. or give, like it can gesture, okay? It can probably do the gesture of a give and the gesture of a banana, but that's as complex as it, as it can get. Um, in fact, there have been attempts to teach uh, chimps a sign language, American sign language, because the assumptions goes right. They don't have the vocal cords. They don't have kind of the apparatus to produce human sounds because their mouth is just so much different. Right. right? Well, and that's what and I was talking about when, when I'm talking about chimps. Yeah. I, yeah, I know they can't so speak. anatomically. Yeah, no. But then the assumption goes, well, if their anatomy doesn't allow them to pronounce, you know, words the way we humans do, but assuming their brains work in a way that they can learn a language, then they can learn American Sign Language. Because for that, they only need their hands and they're really good, you know, at gesturing with their hands. Uh, and again, the chimp, I think it was called Nim Chimsky. I think it was this chimp uh, or maybe a different one. Uh, learned signs, but again, wasn't able to productively combine them to produce new type of sentences that the chimp never heard before. And that's exactly what children do. Children with very little exposure and very little input, they're able to say things that they never heard before. And that is the human language faculty. Humans can say things that they never heard before. They don't repeat, they create. I've never thought of it that way. That's a really interesting point. Yeah. What is... Okay. What is language anxiety? Language anxiety is the fear, the fear of learning, the fear of speaking a foreign language. Ooh, that's it a big is one. connected to self-esteem. Yeah, a lot of self-esteem. Yeah. Uh, it is also connected to aversion to risk taking. If you want to start speaking a language, if you're self-confident, if you don't care about uh, what people will think when you sound stupid, because inevitably, in the beginning, you do to. sound silly, yep. okay? Yep. 
if you are extrovert, then you're then then you probably will start producing language much faster than an introvert person with a low self-esteem. But that's only about producing language, right? The ability to communicate. When it comes to learning the language, it doesn't matter. Your self-esteem doesn't matter. So you can learn the grammar, but these factors here are about when you can start using the language. Yeah. There's, there's yeah. a big difference between learning. I, I mean, I can't tell you how many folks I know, myself included. I'll put myself in here. Whereas, you know, I took Spanish in high school and I'm going to go to this, you know, Spanish speaking country. I'm going to go to Spain for a month and I'll be able to get by. I'm like, you know, I probably won't be sounding really good, but I'll be able to get by. And then spoiler alert, I could not get by. Like, I'd be like, yo, quiero un blah, 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 galleta, por favor. And, <laughs> and the, then they respond, they look at me like, first of all, like, what? And then I'm, I'm like, oh, shoot. All right. Glad I spent all that time learning it. All right. So there's a big difference between the ac academic side and the practical, practical side of it. Uh, yes. Not to mention that what typically is taught in the classroom is very different from the way people really speak, right? In the classroom, True. you are taught a kind of a sterile, cleaned up, neat version of a language. Then you go out on the street and you realize that people don't pronounce half of the consonants. They just swallow them, right? right. Words sound different. Right. Um, so yeah, you need to get used to the way people actually talk. Yeah. Even having a native speaker doesn't help, right? Because teachers tend to speak very clearly. Yes. Yes, they do. And then you go out in the streets and people are speaking with their slang. I remember, I mean, I studied German. Did I study German? Yeah, I did study German. I studied German. You said you did. And yeah, no, well, I studied it and then I went and I lived in Germany for a year. And I ended up in this region where they just had this super thick accent. and I couldn't understand anything like the first three to six months, right? And also the challenge for me, this is the reason, you know, I lived in Germany for a year. My German, looking at your table, which, you know, looking at your table, I should be better at German than I am right now. And the, the problem is that year that I was in Germany, I spent taking English classes, hanging out with international students who spoke English because it was an international program that I was in. And I try to go out onto the streets and practice my German and people would hear my English accent and they'd reply to me in English. It was very, it's very hard for an English speaker to practice German because all of the Germans, and I talked to someone about this, they were, they've been learning English since they were five years old and they are so excited to meet an English speaker and they can practice their English. So it was very hard to find someone to practice my German with. But yes, I, I guess that, that goes towards, towards time. You know, I just, even though I was there for a year, it's, I, I just didn't, don't, didn't log the hours, so to speak. Yeah, because you didn't use it for that many hours. Yes, you were practicing your English. Exactly. And I was helping other people better? practice their, my English yeah. probably got worse because I was practicing my English with a bunch of non-English speakers. <laughs> <laughs> but. Yeah. Well, as, as we're wrapping up here, um, great article. Once again, everybody, it's in the July issue of Multilingual Magazine, which I have here somewhere. But um, I highly recommend, just go read it. It's, it's very digestible. I think it's three pages. So very nice, informative, digestible read. 
anything, any questions I forgot to ask you or any closing thoughts, final thoughts for the aspiring language learners out there, Marina? I, I think I want to I have mentioned a phenomenon which is very closely connected to language learning. And I had, don't mention it in the article at all, but I'm sure that many people who have learned languages have uh, have uh, faced it. And it's the opposite. It's the language attrition. OK, so be careful, you know, when you learn a language and you don't use it, then uh, it is subject to language attrition. That is, it breaks down what you've learned. It's not there anymore. So if you have learned German at high school 10 years ago, uh, and for 10 years you haven't practiced it, you haven't read books, you haven't been exposed to German, then it, it's kind of gone. Uh, so the so, good thing- So that's real. Like I, I've said that all along, like if you, don't, if you don't use it, you lose it, right? Is what we say. Totally, totally. It, it's called language attrition. It happens not only with second language learning, it happens also with your native language. If you don't use your native language for a long time, it will also be subject to attrition, so it deteriorates. It can get polluted by other languages, so it can actually you can have a stronger second language than your first language, and your second language can start influencing your native language. So, um, so this is why uh, like it's it, it's a good thing Tom Hanks had the volleyball out on the desert island to talk to, because if yeah. you're if you're out yes. alone and you don't have anyone to talk to, you literally your language, uh, language attrition, your language, you'll lose your language. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So if you have invested time in learning a, a foreign language, you need to think of it as a lifelong investment, right? If you want to learn it and keep it, you have to continue reading books, watching TV, listening to music in that language so that you don't lose it. Very interesting. Well, Marina, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me on the program. I, I think I were coming up on the hour, so I think I'll take us out here. Ladies, gentlemen, chat, we are out of time for today. If you enjoyed this Nimsy Live experience, then join us next time on tomorrow. Do I have some tomorrow? Go check our LinkedIn page. It has our whole calendar of events coming up. And make sure that you are subscribed to that so that you get notified when we do publish new events. I appreciate my guest today, Marina Panchava. I appreciate my colleagues at Nimsy Insights doing all the hard work so I can have these fun conversations. I appreciate everybody in our industry who fills out Nimsy surveys and schedules briefings with our analysts so that we can include you in our published industry research. And finally, I appreciate you, our listeners, everybody who's subscribed to the podcast, follows us on LinkedIn, and all of the above. And I look forward to next time. Cheers. Thank <laughs> you.